Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everybody. Dungeon Deep Dive. Yeah, it's the first time in a long time that we've all been in the same room recording, and I am very excited. Oh, the vibes are impeccable. It's so honestly bizarre to be doing this, because like we've been, for everyone at home, we've been hanging out for a couple hours now, um, mm. because I have <laughs> no time management skills. Um, but that's beside the point. We've been hanging out for a couple hours now, and I'm sitting here recording with these guys, and it's like, I'm... I almost don't... I'm kind of dissociating. Because we've been recording, <laughs> like, through the internet, and talking through the internet for so long. I, I kind of just never thought that we'd ever be able to record in the same room again. And recording uh, via the internet, it takes such mental effort. Uh, imagine just feeling like you're under scrutiny while having to present yourself constantly even when you're with people that you love dearly and who you know would never judge you for anything. Also, my internet sucks. So there's also, a couple of times where I just like disappear from episodes because my internet just like ruined everything for me. Yeah, there have been about four re- potential recordings that we've had to bow out of because Grace's <laughs> internet was so atrocious. Yeah, it's rough. It's, um, it's really nice to be able to record a podcast without kicking my parents off Netflix and my brother off his video games so that my internet goes fast enough. <laughs> Sorry, uh, you're, you're breaking up. I, I can't... Um... So before we get going into too much of stuff, I would like to just uh, say a quick acknowledgement uh, of country. Um, we are recording in Brisbane, uh, the Mianjin land uh, known as the traditional lands of the Turrbal and Yagara people, north and south of the Brisbane River. Um, these are these always have been lands of uh, teaching and storytelling, and we would like to continue in that tradition wherever possible. Um, we acknowledge that these are stolen lands and that sovereignty was never ceded, and we'd like to pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Um, if you'd like to be a part of this conversation, uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, feel free to write on in, and uh, we'll have you with us as soon as we can. Yeah. And that also goes for anyone else who would like to be, be a part of the conversation. Uh, write in at Dungeon Deep Dive on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or send us an email. Deep Dive... Ooh. Deep Dive, deep dive TNC. TNC at gmail.com. That's the one. You'd think I'd know this. I, it was my idea, and I set up the accounts. Mm-hmm. I, I just... I don't know, man. I don't know, man. Who has the time to check emails? I do. I'll check the emails. I promise. <sighs> Tully will check it. Every day I get emails, and every day I look at them, I think, why would I send somebody something this terrible? Yeah, I can't imagine being someone in an office who sends just, like, shitty 
sad, like, mundane emails to people that's just, like, mundane bad news. I just... Can you imagine that being your life? Just yeah. sending everyone the worst email every day? God. Because someone see, has to send them all. If I see one more email that says, I understand that times are tough. I'm oh. going to scream. <laughs> I get emails from the university and they've just started, like, doing, like, a copy-paste bit down the bottom with all, like, the mental health services stuff because they're like, you don't want to read this, but you will. <laughs> Do you want to talk to someone about it? <laughs> It's the fucking same energy as all those celebrities singing Imagine. <laughs> God. Uh, but the university makes me pay for them to sing Imagine to me. So, uh, for the rest of this episode, it's just going to be us uh, giving you uh, PayPal details and singing Imagine. <laughs> and uh, you're just going to have to keep paying us to keep hearing it. Mm. Actually, you have to pay us to stop hearing it. That's actually that's a better business model. Let's yeah, go with that. It's like that Christmas Carol, uh, where it's like with the line of that Christmas Carol. It's like, uh, give us some figgy pudding, or we won't go home. <laughs> it's like that, except it's forty dollars. Yeah, exactly. forty-five Australian dollars uh, deposited to my PayPal. Yeah, um, or I will not stop singing Imagine. So Gal Gadot. While uh, Lachlan quietly sings Imagine uh, in the background, we're going to be talking a little bit about a topic that's very close. To all of our lives. We're talking about quarantine, uh, baby. Yeah. Baby. Yeah. So, I might start us off if that's alright. I'm continuing in the great uh, Dungeon Deep Dive tradition of picking a topic and then immediately taking a tangent. So, I'm talking about, uh, a, talking about a, a period of history called the Great Confinement. Uh, now, this is described... Described by one particular philosopher uh, by the name of Michel Foucault in the book Madness and Civilization. Seminal work, absolutely worth reading. Also, though, a very heavy read. So if you want to read the Spark Notes, uh, it is also an excellent resource that sums up a lot of the work quite well. I am shocked that Madness and Civilization isn't a cheerful read. <laughs> I love Spark Notes. I'm thinking about Spark. it. Spark Notes is great. Spark Notes is incredible. So... First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to set the scene a little bit here. So everyone's familiar with the Renaissance. It's a big period of artistic, uh, so this artistic development and expression. And one of the big things about it was it set madness as a very, I guess, romantic topic to talk about with works like Don Quixote and King Lear, where madness was seen as this pained struggle of, of geniuses. What is, I'm sorry to interrupt. What is Don Quixote about? Uh, it is about a man who goes mad and... Uh, essentially, as far as I'm aware, he starts he going starts on this epic windmills. quest. Yeah, he goes on an epic quest to... Uh, I, it's, I think it's something to do with like regaining his honour, but he's completely mad, and so he's imagining all the monsters. So one of oh, the big okay. things of it is him tilting at windmills, oh. which is he jousts windmills because he imagines there are giants in them. I see. Because someone always told me to read it, and I didn't read it, because I got it confused with Don Juan, and I was like, I don't want to fucking read that. That sounds boring. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, not, I'm sure Don Juan's fine, but it's just like, I was 14, I didn't want to read about Don Juan. Can't, yeah. can't speak for the book, but I went and saw the ballet for my birthday one year when I was younger, and that was fun. That was really good. They of went what? real wacky. Of Don Quixote. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it was like, all the costumes and stuff of his like madness were like, whack. Hmm. But yeah, so the through throughout the Renaissance, there was this huge tendency towards portraying madness as this artistic struggle. Um, but following that, we got the classical age, 
which seems absolutely determined to reduce any mentions of madness to complete silence. So, around about this time, we've got uh, an event, uh, or an, less an event and more an era, broadly known as the General Crisis. Um, <laughs> that sounds good. Otherwise known as my late teens to early 20s. So, there's, there's a lot of debate over what exactly the Great Crisis, the General Crisis is, and whether it should be called that, but there are a bunch of things that happen in a very short span. So, right after what was known as the medieval warm period, where there was really trop- like warm weather for everywhere, crops were growing very quickly, there was a lot of food abundance, the Little Ice Age, uh, and that's what it's called, the Little Ice Age, mm. it caused a, a huge decline in crop growth uh, after a huge period of population growth. Uh, and basically that meant that there was not enough food to feed everyone. Famine all across Europe and Asia. There was a, a bunch of different wars broke out at the same time. What um, are we talking? We're, to- we're talking the 1800s here? Like yeah. early 1800s? Uh, no, this is this is uh, in the 1600s. This is in the 17th century. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, one of them, there's the Central European War, which resulted in about 8 million fatalities varying between violence, famine, and plague. It actually killed 20% of the German population, but between Pomerania and the Black Forest, uh, it was disproportionately high. It was about 50% of their population. Uh, who was the war between? It was a, it was a general war, but it started as a, a Catholic and Protestant conflict. Ah, they did love to do that. They did very much. The Catholics and the Protestants really did love a war. Yeah. Then there was the War of Three Kingdoms, which uh, took part took place in the UK. Uh, it was a series of conflicts between England, Scotland, and Ireland, uh, and it includes the English Civil War as well. And it oh, we're this era. Okay, yeah. cool. I said I was just looking for like some some reference reference point of where in history yeah. we are. Uh, and it actually uh, worked all the way through to the abolition of King Charles the First in sixteen forty nine. At the same time, there's also the collapse of the Ming Dynasty. There's the Front, which is a series of insurrections, basically, that ended with the exile of Regent King Louis XIV. Now, this is actually an important one, this taking, event taking place in France, because this is setting the scene for what I'm going to talk about. But these insurrections, they began to protect the rights of the Parlement, which are the courts of appeal against royal decree. Basically, the chance, if the, the king said, hey, you can't do this, the parliaments essentially were the chance to say, um, actually, I think we, the citizens, have a right to not do that. Yeah, exactly the same thing that the English Civil War was over. Yes. Um, ultimately, though, it failed, and because of the violence of the insurrections, uh, it discredited the supporters of feudal liberty quite a lot and paved the way for a royalist absol- for royalist absolutionism. Basically, uh, an autocracy where the king just decided what, what happened. Um... So, unfortunately, this revolution completely failed and, in fact, did the opposite of what it was meant to um, because the, their PR was bad. <laughs> Somebody should have should have got their like, social media experts up to date on those trends because like, that seems to be the main issue they needed in PR these days. Yes! They needed a relatable intern to write a uh, sort of thinly-veiled, anguished spin well what they actually needed was like a cute anime girl mascot that's 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 all the the french revolution needed too cute anime girl mascot yeah i mean that's all napoleon was let's be real yeah (laughs) can we i just sorry i just want to circle back for a moment yeah this because general crisis i just that's why i was looking for i was looking for a point in history Hmm. because this is like the era just before the birth of socialism 
as a movement. This is the era that Karl Marx was writing about when he was talking about the separation of town and country. Mm. So just because you were talking about the changes in the weather, I was just wondering, would you mind if I just like... Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm still in setup, but so feel free to go talk a little more about Because you're not going in that direction, are you? I don't believe so, no. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, this is, and I think it touches on what you're going to get to. So this was an era where more and more people were becoming aware of like the differences in class. They were becoming a lot more pronounced around this time. Because what was happening was as industry was starting to become a thing, people were more and more working in the towns. And obviously the Black Plague had also been sweeping through for uh, on and off for a few centuries at this point. So there wasn't like a whole lot of healthy working population around this time. So people started migrating more and more to towns and out of the countryside. And it meant that the peasantry who were growing things out in the countryside were having to ship away all of their resources to other people. And all of the stuff that would then go back into the environment, um, all of the like natural waste and stuff that would keep like the topsoil good and everything mm. was being shipped away and nothing was coming back. And they were, they were beginning an era of really strict industrial farming uh-huh. and stuff, which was stripping the soil of all its nutrients. So that was what really changed the uh, ability. That was what deteriorated their ability to grow crops. And so compounding with suddenly colder weather after an immediate growth in population... This is it's is causing extreme famine essentially. Yeah, and so that's why that's why I would imagine it's contentious to call this a gen the general crisis because the crisis aspect of it is a very like Marxist analysis mm. um, because essentially Marx was saying that this was uh, also because uh, more wealth was being concentrated in cities so they were buying more things from the country and everything. Yeah, so um, it actually. So- uh, it, there was a huge uh, period of economic downturn pretty much throughout Europe, um, which was not only a general downturn, but a huge, as you said, concentration of wealth. Because what was... Yeah, this was the, this was the era where um, economists were talking about... were finally kind of moving away from talking about, rather, the dangers of growth in private wealth. But it's the, the crisis thing is essentially that it's, it exemplifies the like destruction of nature and labour. That yeah, uh, socialism talks about. Anyway, I just um, wanted to just because yeah, no, it's a good think uh, the use of crisis is background. It's also worth noting that in the 1640s, in the, right in the middle of this century, no major state avoided a major conflict. Mm. That is throughout all of Europe and Asia, no major state avoided uh, a conflict of any kind. Yeah, it was everything was expanding beyond its means. There was no way to continue going that way without taking from some from someone else. So people were constantly fighting. Yeah. Um, so one big thing, uh, and I'm going to settle this almost entirely in Paris, because Paris becomes the centre of a European movement, uh, a, a shift in thought about uh, idleness, about homelessness, about madness, and about contribution. And... This all starts in Paris in 1656 with the founding of what's known as the Hospital General, or the, the Hospital uh, General, uh, however you pronounce it in French, but it's not a hospital. It's important to know this. It's not a hospital. Um, this was uh, this was a building in which jurisdiction was all, their jurisdiction was not medical, but in mostly legal and administrative. And it had absolute sovereignty over all its inhabitants. <laughs> that meant that they had no form of appeal. If 
the administration of the hospital general said that something happens, then it happens. There was no way to appeal that whatsoever. That it's... doesn't seem like it would invite a misuse and abuse of power at all. That seems like that's something that really should should exist. Mm. That yeah, that's literally sovereign power. That's crazy. That's yeah. like that's like like a deep legal theory, Agamben's concept of the sovereign defining the exception. That's like like it's so wow, that's fucked up. Yep. That's like some concentration camp shit. It truly is some concentration camp shit. Um, and it was a small, a, a relatively small institution, but it's symbolic, symbolically very poignant of the changing attitudes with the, the age of reason. So this is the, the age known as the age of reason now. Gotta love the enlightenment. Shout out to my boy, Thomas Hobbes. <laughs> so one of the, Run his bullshit around now. So one of the big things that changed here, especially in the public perception was the, that moral obligation and law became intrinsically linked because of the author- authoritarian rule of religious monarchs. Mm-hmm. Um, so the laws were decided on what was right, which was yeah, more on moral obligation. It was what the people were obligated to be doing. Yeah, because this wasn't an era where, like now, you had to justify what you were doing by like reference to like common morality. It's the authority was morality. Yeah, you were given the right to decide what was good and bad, um, and that was just all it was. So this has all been set up so far. I'm sure most of you are wondering what on earth this has to do with quarantine, because right now I've not spoken about anything even remotely quarantine related. Here's the big. Here's the the skinny on it though. <laughs> Yeah, Here's I know. the big skinny. Here's the big skinny. Here's um, the big skinny. So while the, rela- the Renaissance had brought in these depictions of the mad as being engaged with the reasonable, but just representing some mysterious force of tragedy, it was very much uh, a tragic misunderstanding. It had brought about this objective description of what was reason and what was unreason. And so we were then able to define madness as engagement with unreason. And if you were not... Because of the the link between moral obligation and reason, suddenly, if you weren't living up to your moral obligation, you were therefore unreasonable and therefore mad. Hmm. Here's where we uh, come back to the Hospital General. It was uh, around about this point that we started separating the mad from from, from political prisoners. At this point, if you were mad, you were kept somewhere else. There was actually a huge... <laughs> Wait, so at one point they did. They were just like spies and people who they thought were crazy just went into the same room? The same prisons, yeah. Same institutions guarded them. Because they were just prisons. There were places to put them away. That's fair. I guess, I guess in a time of less accountability, prisons really can just be a place with people you don't like. Yeah, but what ended up happening was... Because it was your moral obligation, uh, in a time immediately after and still during a huge economic downturn, it was your moral obligation to work, according to the the autocracy. Hmm. And so, if you weren't working, if you weren't contributing to your community and to your city and to your nation, then you were seen as defying your moral obligation and therefore defying reason. And you were locked up. 
And you've also got to remember, this is an era where <coughs> people are becoming more and more engaged with the writings of, like, philosophers and academics and, like, kind of uh, people that they would have seen as, like, like high-minded, educated thinkers. That sort of, like, crowd. I mean, that's why it's called, like, the Enlightenment. Yeah. And so, and, like, they were celebrity in some sense at the time. So people were really latching on to all of these ideas of, like, that people were writing about, about how, like, working for and operating a market is, like, the natural state of man. It's, like, your natural right to have private property and to engage in, like, economy and trade and stuff. This was, like, uh, there was a lot of work being done. It was mainly to justify uh, expanding markets through colonialism, mm. but it also managed to seep enough into the public consciousness that you stopped being a member of your community, stopped being a peasant, and you start and you became like a worker. Yeah, and so throughout the next fifty years or so, throughout the next fifty years or so, there was action taken on the mad, where the mad were put into asylums. Essentially, they were put into hospitals um, or asylums, which were essentially a place to confine the mad. And so throughout the next fifty years or so, um, the action that was taken on the mad essentially was. It started with the absolutely mad. It's, uh, you know, not people who are unreasonable, the absolutely mad, were all put in asylums. Mm -hmm. And then authority figures figured out that you couldn't necessarily justify putting just the incredibly stark raving lunatics in in uh, prisons, in asylums, because, well, how could you tell a stark raving lunatic from somebody who was homeless and a bit mad? So then they started putting them in there, but obviously they couldn't treat them the same, so they had to assess them as to what kind of mad they were. And then after that, it became the people who weren't contributing, the vagrants, the blasphemers, the bohemians, the prostitutes, they were all put in asylums too. And essentially it became, as, as it's known, the Great Confinement, and a period where more and more people got put into asylums and assessed and re-educated so that they would contribute to society. Uh, which... So that they would contribute to industry. Well, and that's, that's the, the subtext there is society. Like, that's the thing is, prostitutes had jobs and were creating wealth for themselves and spending it and, you know, mm. but because it wasn't seen as moral work, because it wasn't moral within the church and it wasn't moral in creating industry, it became seen as another form of, uh, of objecting to moral truth. Hey, question. Uh, what would you guys be sent to the re-education camps for? Uh, bohemia, uh, bohemianism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um... Bohemia? Is that what it is? I have no, yeah. no clue. Being a bohemian. Yes. I don't know. Lying around drinking be... wine and postulating on ridiculous things. I don't know what I'd be classified as in that age. Blasphemer, definitely. Probably a blasphemer. You'd be a blasphemer. Yeah. Reading novels. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, I, like, I'd say you'd probably fit into a bohemian as well. Yeah, uh, I'm like 22 Anything with poetry. Years, I'm 22 years old, I haven't had any kids, and I just read a lot. They're probably like, that's fucked up, dude. We don't like that. <laughs> exactly. And so essentially all of these people over the next 50 years were put into hospitals whose sole purpose was to re-educate and reform. Uh, and this is where you get through to the 18th century, where through to, uh, I think it starts about 1656... Uh, not, not 1656, that's the founding of the Hospital General. It was in... I've got the year here in a sec. 17... <coughs> Actually, 72. here we are. 1769. <sighs> Love that one. Nice. 
Um, so I'm thinking of a different date, but essentially over the 18th century now, uh, we're in a new century, things are being enlightened. No, we get to houses of correction, which are being used to provide cheap labor. Yay. Now the thought behind this was that by using cheap labor from workhouses, let's not beat around the bush here. It's slave labor mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. of the ab- absolute sovereignty of the houses. But it was thought that by putting them to work, that they would be contributing to the society and they would reduce unemployment. What ended up happening was because the houses of correction were not spending all the money earned on the people there uh, and it was undercutting the labour of the masses, you ended up creating an intense period of heightened unemployment and so more people were put into workhouses and more people were put into asylums. It's really a self-fulfilling prophecy, this one. It's almost as if that was the point. Ooh. Ooh. Um, Ooh, so scandalous. Yeah. The Great Confinement was maybe a shitty thing to do. And they did it on purpose a little bit. Who would have thought? So through the, throughout the 18th century, all of these people just constantly put into these confinements away from civilization because it was thought that they were defying their moral imperative. Their, their moral... Obligations? Their moral obligations. There we are. And then our last key date in 1794. 1794, Pinel who was, I believe, the president at the time, head of the the French government, (coughs) um, basically closed the asylums. Oh, yeah. um, Free to the madmen confined in the Bicentre prison. And basically it was separating madmen from political criminals and developing a system of treatment for madness based on conscience, which, as it turned out, was... In another one of Foucault's works, uh, I think it's called something to do with medicine. But Foucault talks a lot about modern institutions and how they are actually more cruel than the earlier versions of it that are seen as more barbaric. Yeah, he was the one that theorised the panopticon. Yeah, theorised the panopticon of total illusion of scrutiny. Well, total disillusionment of scrutiny. Total disillusionment of uh, scrutiny. Basically, the idea that you could be watched at any point, and so, for all intents and purposes, you are being watched at any point. But there is never any way to confirm whether you're actually being watched. So you have to then... You are forced to self-regulate. Which is a form of governance that's employed in prisons, in offices, in schools... And even in hospitals. I mean, we literally live in a surveillance state. We live in a... There's a good argument to be made that everything's a panopticon now. Yeah, we are living in a panopticon. But essentially, I this... wish they put the panopticon, like, aesthetic at least. The panopticon aesthetic is excellent. If you think of um, my favourite pop culture reference to the panopticon is Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, there's the prison scene where they've got the guard oh. tower right in the middle and all the cells around the outside. That's cool. Uh, that is the typical panopticon, where it was a, a literal architectural feature of French prisons where they would have the guard tower in the centre and all the prisoners around the outside so the guards couldn't possibly be watching everyone but at any moment could be watching anyone and so prisoners were less likely to act up but yeah that's that's essentially all I came to talk about was this idea that because of the moral imperative enforced by the authoritarian rule there was this period of time in France but all it also bled out throughout East, throughout Western Europe that the mad were people that did not contribute to the economy, that did not contribute to industry or society, and as such were locked away. And that's a really interesting sort of political thing that you can bring in as a way to to increase tension in in a campaign. Um, I think the idea of adventurers as vagrants means they're likely to get locked up in a system like that. 
Mm, that's um, a good point. Especially if you're looking at your bards and your wizards who are, you know, high-minded, thinking about their, their arts and their studies, mm. rather than actually doing anything solid, it's likely to be a very interesting conflict. Yeah. <laughs> Arrested for having a brain cell. <laughs> Give it up. Give that brain cell to me, you illiterate fool. Arrested for thought crimes. <laughs> I um, like it. Yeah, so that's that's the Great Confinement in a nutshell. It, there is obviously so much more than what I've said. Uh, and if you read through A Madness and Civilization, look up Foucault's life work. Foucault was an incredible man, uh, worth checking him out. But yeah, that's that's my bit. And I might hand over to Grace Shadell next to me. It's me. I'm here. And I'm talking about somebody who was locked up and they did kind of a little bit deserve it. Just unlike, unlike the French Bohemians. Yeah, we're going to get a little bit more into... Quarantine can be used as a political tool, but sometimes quarantine <laughs> is an important medical strategy. Yeah, mm. maybe sometimes this is a good idea. Okay, so I'm talking about everyone's favourite skinny lunch in Typhoid Mary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Love her. Uh, did anyone have Colonial Day back at school? No. What? Are what? You oh my about? god, that this was awful. This was okay. So there was a day. Uh, I think it happened annually for a couple of years. Where in primary school, where basically they would have a day where we would all just have, they would replace regular classes with like essentially a history lesson of immersion in colonial style schooling. Um, <laughs> You're allowed to be racist. And they for gave one us. Day. They gave us like slates and chalk what? and. Obviously, it wasn't like actual colonial schooling oh. because we had breaks and we didn't have typhoid. But one of the things they taught us about was apparently schools in colonial Australia had a thing called Typhoid Day, which was which was where they would secretly nominate somebody to have typhoid, and that somebody would keep an eye on everyone around them and whether or not they'd been washing their hands before they ate, and they would try and infect as many people as possible. That's kind of fun. And so it was. It, Basically teaching everyone about how disease oh, spreads. Oh, they didn't actually have no, typhoid. No, no, no. I think that they literally gave a, a kid, kid typhoid. <laughs> and if someone was, like, not being clean you enough... Got, just got typhoid. Then, they, yeah. then the kids was tasked with infecting them with typhoid. If yeah. I can get you sick with typhoid, then, then you're in trouble. Um, but yeah. yeah, essentially it became, like, a game of teaching kids to wash their hands before they ate. And this this one person, it was kind of like I'm trying. There's there's a, a kids game that's very similar. Cheese touch. I don't know, but it's like a hidden <laughs> roll game. It's like this one person is is nominated, and they don't tell anyone, but they have to track who they infected throughout the day. It's wild. My school didn't have that. We had mateship day, which was like a couple of days after Anzac Day, where basically the whole school took a day off classes, and we did like. All sorts of like Anzac themed uh, team building things that was supposed to like teach you the meaning of mateship. Oh, mateship. Oh. <laughs> um, at one point, I remember getting into a, a kiddie pool full of that uh, jelly bath stuff, and you had to hold a pool noodle above your head and pick up marbles with your toes, and you had Ooh. to imagine that you were getting bullets out of the mud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. That's a lot. It was a lot. Okay, uh, so yeah. sorry for that. Uh... <laughs> Typhoid Mary moved to New York from Ireland, and then she worked as a cook for rich families because she was good at it. She was like, I got the skills, and you're paying me a lot of money. Hello. Our only problem was, so she moved to New York from Ireland in 1900. She worked for a family, and within two weeks, they developed typhoid fever. 
Ooh. So <clears throat> she got there. She got a job. Immediately, someone got sick, and she thought they have typhoid fe- typhoid fever, and I don't want to get that. I'm gonna leave. See Wait, you later. Sorry. So she came into New York from Ireland, and then the first job she got, and they didn't check her to see if she had typhoid. Uh, well, she didn't even know. I guess like she, she didn't has, I guess she, she had no symptoms or anything. She wasn't sick. She didn't have any issues. So mm. a year later in 1901, she got a new family. They got fevers and diarrhea. I don't think anyone was actually diagnosed with typhoid, but a laundress died. They clearly had they clearly had, from typhoid. Yeah. <laughs> then she worked a little for a little while for a lawyer, but she left after seven of the eight people living in that house got sick. <laughs> Once again, she left, not because she thought she was making them sick, but because they had typhoid fever and she didn't want to catch it from them. So the whole time she was trying she to was, not get yeah, sick? Yeah. yeah, like she was leaving these jobs and she just thought that like typhoid fever was super common in New York and she didn't want to catch it. And so she was like, I'm leaving to protect myself. I guess this was before she was caught, so how would she, she know? She just like didn't know. Mm. In 1906, she got a job in Long Island and within two weeks, similar to the first family, 10 of the 11 family members were hospitalised. <laughs> at what point, in two weeks at what point do you start believing yeah like even if you don't believe you're giving them typhoid mm-hmm. at what point do you start believing that you are actually just cursed yeah <laughs> um yeah she changed jobs a couple more times and similar things happened in three more households so so far this is one two three four five six seven eight this is eight households between 1900 and 1906 Jeez. So, 1906, she worked as a cook for a wealthy banker who rented a summer home in Oyster Bay, and she went with them. Yeah. So, between August 27 and September 11, uh, September 3, that's 11 days, so 11 days, she infected six of the 11 people in the house. <laughs> According to the doctors in Oyster Bay, it was really unusual to see typhoid fever in that area, and they were like, we don't have, we don't know where you could have caught this, we don't get cases like this here. Like, nobody's got typhoid fever. Fucking Mary shitting in the wells again. In the same year, in 1906, one of the families she'd worked for had hired a typhoid researcher called, and this is a great name, George Super. Ooh. Ooh. Mr. Super. Yeah, I do want to quickly clarify for anyone who doesn't know, uh, typhoid fever is transmitted via the fecal oral route. Yeah. So that means that she was literally just getting bits of her shit in their food all the time. Yeah, she... she... Yeah, she just clearly didn't wash her hands often enough. She just, like, didn't have great hygiene practices in the kitchen. And it's not hard to... uh, to like and this is that. the point post germ theory, right? Where people oh, yeah, are taught yeah. people to wash their hands theory. with soap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it looked like, and this is, this is how they think it happened. Typhoid is one of those germs that even if you do get it in food, you heat it up and it dies. So any food that was properly cooked would have been safe to eat. The only problem with her she is that it with her bare hands afterwards. No, no. One of the reasons why she was such a popular cook and was so easily able to find work was because her frozen desserts were her specialty. Oh no! She made lots of lots of lots of like ice creams and sorbets and like little <laughs> desserts, and all the rich people wanted fancy little oh, desserts. And it's not properly. So it's not stuff that you're like cooking with a like in a and heating up a lot. This is just stuff that you know you'd melt it and then you'd let it set later on or you yeah. freeze it. So it was it was basically just like some of the food she was preparing wasn't cooked and probably sat lukewarm for a while before it was yeah. frozen again too. Yeah. 
So George Super looked into the outbreak and he traced it back to her. Um, apparently he had a hard time finding her because she was so afraid of getting sick. She left all her jobs as soon as there was an outbreak and obviously like didn't really leave a forwarding address because she'd just stay with whoever she was working with time. It wasn't until there was an active outbreak where two of the servants had been hospitalized and the uh, daughter had died that he managed to catch up with her. I think he just was just like keeping an eye out for typhoid outbreaks and just went oh, that might be her. Yep. Yeah. Basically he explained his theory about her being asymptomatic which wasn't really a theory at the time. He sort of was the one using her as an example to set this up as like a very realistic theory that you could be sick without knowing it. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, something like that, you'd have to have such mm. a such an obvious series of yeah. awful cases yeah. for that to even be a conceivable thing at the time. Yeah, yeah, she was super offended because he explained the theory to her and he wasn't even, like, mad at her. He was like, you don't have any way of knowing this. This is brand new. And he asked her for, like, stool samples and saliva samples and shit like that. And she was like, fuck you, no. Of course not. I can't believe you'd think that I'm doing this. And she, like, refused and left. I guess it would have been pretty traumatic for her. Mm. And now it's like, now she's being blamed all of a sudden. Yeah. Mm. He then compiled a five-year history of her employment and found that of the eight families she'd worked for, seven had reported cases of typhoid. <laughs> so... Alyssa she washed her hands properly once. Yeah. <laughs> she tried at one house and yeah. was just like, you know what, never mind. Um, I'm over this. He then returned Actually, to their the freezer was just broken. <laughs> <laughs> she worked for them during winter and they didn't want any ice cream because it was It was cold. all cakes. He then went back with a doctor and convinced her to voluntarily be admitted to a hospital for testing and isolation, but she refused again. And in 1907, so a year later, the New York City Health Inspector decided that she was a carrier and she was arrested and held in isolation at a clinic on North Brother Island for three years. <laughs> so she oh. she knew she was like because at that point someone presents you with like five years of your employment history and tells you all of these families are sick and at that point I think about four people had died and they say please come let us see if you're sick or not and you say no that's you know what that's kind of on you now yeah <laughs> so yeah she was there for three years she was essentially just like I don't know how to describe it it was kind of like a house arrest she could like wander around the island and shit but she couldn't like interact with any of the staff or like do the food she just like had her own room it seems pretty boring she just had to be isolated yeah yeah eventually it was decided after they like tested theories and they looked into it and they got some other people that seemed to be asymptomatic they decided that the carriers didn't need to be isolated because their original worry was that if she was around people at all she would get them sick and they were like look actually we realize that you're probably cool to be out in public as long as you like adhere to basic sanitary measures yeah so she was released in 1910 under the agreement that she had to stop working as a cook and take hygienic precautions to stop infection which i'm assuming was just like yeah washing your hands wash your hands before you touch food and after you go to the bathroom yeah Mm. nothing that crazy uh so when she was released she was given a job in a laundry because they were like look we can't just like set you out we gotta hook you up with something you'll starve so they got a job in a laundry but that didn't pay as well as being a cook for rich families. <laughs> so after a few years, she just, like, changed her name and got a job in a kitchen. Oh, no. Um, so for the next five years, she caused more outbreaks, but she switched jobs more frequently, and the authorities were never able to catch up to her. 
So basically, like, the second there was an outbreak, she'd ditch. Change hmm. her name, get a new job. Surely just start washing your hands. You would think it's not that complicated. It's, yeah. it's re- like, and that's the solution. That's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're not asking for much. So, all of this, between, uh, this is 10 years, this is 1900 to 1910 was when she was, when all of this happened and she was released from the hospital. In 1915, five years after she was arrested and released, she caused a major outbreak at a women's hospital where 25 people were infected and two died. Oh my god. Basically, they caught up to her there and they were like... Because she was cooking at a hospital. Yeah, they caught up to her and they were like, dude, you promised you'd be cool. You promised. We have to arrest you now. And then she spent the rest of her life quarantined to North Brother Island, where she was held the first time, until she died of pneumonia at age 69. Nice. They... <laughs> yeah. I think that was, was the darkest nice we've ever had on the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Because they were like, look, it's fine. You, if you're cool about it, if you just wash your hands, if you just take, like, the basic safety precautions, you can live a normal life and you can have a job. Just please don't work in food and wash your hands. Because it's so easy. You just wash and, your hands properly. And she said, actually, no. Fuck you. I love making ice cream. And then she and got I arrested. And I hate washing my hands. Yeah, and then she was arrested and held in a medical facility for the rest of her life. Apparently, like, they made it pretty comfortable for her. She didn't have to, like, stay in the hospital. It was, like, quite an open plan. So but of... she had to live there she and did have to back live there. there. She did have to live there. She got a job there, as like, in the laundry so she could, like, earn some money to have nicer things. And she had her own, like, cottage on the island. But she could not leave the cottage and she could only work in the laundry, which I'm assuming didn't pay very well. Yeah. She was just, like under supervision for the rest of her life because she refused to fucking wash her hands and stop being a cook. It's the only place they could force her to put her hands in hot soapy water. Yeah. Just like even once, please Mary, wash your hands. Uh, I guess clean the uniforms. Yeah, it took 15, yeah, in 15 years it it looks like she's killed 10. Jesus. 10 people and infected 25, 20, more than 25, like 35 people. Yeah, like literally dozens. This is a very conservative estimate. The website that I was looking at puts her infection rate, uh, her like infection numbers at maybe 200. Um, Because if you take into account the fact that she was like jumping around between houses, it's difficult to trace. Mm. Um, but yeah. Because I guess they would have been spreading it too. Yeah, because also people weren't keeping track of that sort of thing as well. Epidemiology wasn't really much of a... Yeah. So they were like, look, we know at least, I think it was 50 people she personally infected that have been confirmed for her, but it could be this high, and we think it actually is this high, we just don't have, like, the paperwork to back that one up. So, yeah, maybe, wash your hands, uh, listen to health professionals... And you won't be put in hospital prison. Uh, yeah. And I mean, if you want someone to... If you want a disease to start spreading in a gaming room, breaking quarantine is a real quick way to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have... I'm. <laughs> yeah, my character's an asymptomatic uh, carrier. And next time I'm in the tavern, I, I specify I do not wash my hands. And everyone dies. What's up? This is my new character. I'm a plague rat. <laughs> I, that's just my whole deal. I'm just a plague rat. What's up? It's me. Level one plague rat. God. I cast fireball. <laughs> but I am just a plague rat. Yeah. You cast fireball. I go over and nibble on your toes while my fleas give you the plague. Hang on. So, plague rat. Mm-hmm. Uh, subclass for druid, rogue, or cleric? New class. 
New class? New class. It's Beautiful. just plague rat. It's New class. Rat. No subclasses though. Uh, the only thing that changes when you level is more fleas. No, I, rec- oh. I reckon uh, pox rat, fleas rat, and uh, thoughts. Thoughts. Plague doctor druid. My animal companion is a plague rat. It's a self-perpetuating business. That's I mean, good. you're not wrong. That is good money. There's good money in it. Proficiency in medicine. <laughs> so, Go for it. Yeah, so that's me. Nice. Okay, well, yeah, I guess it leaves it to me then. So I did... Look, going... I did what I always did. I did way too much, like, academic reading for this one. Welcome to Dungeon Deep Dive. Oh, you have fun about it, though? Yeah, it was good. It was good. I'll give it that. <laughs> Look, okay, so I figured that one of the things that I think is the most difficult part of presenting stuff like this, presenting, like, diseases and disasters and things like that in in such a different era, because, I mean, Dungeons & Dragons and most fantasy things are modelled off of, like, the Middle Ages, and they didn't think of things in the way that we do now. So it's kind of difficult to imagine as a DM and as a player, like how people, how you would react to times of like pestilential disease Mm. and to times of crisis and disaster in general. And like, who would you trust to turn to? Who, what would be, like, what do people do? So I was looking into it and I found a few good articles. One on charms and prayers in medieval medical theory and practice by Leo T. Olson. I got one on medical deontology and pestilential disease in the late Middle Ages by my boy Daryl W. Amundsen, who wrote a whole bunch of really good articles on like the history of like medical sociology. Really good author. Just figured, I mean, mm. might as well shout him out while I'm here. Also, also to listeners who right now are going, I don't understand any of these words, don't worry, I had pre-warning of this about 45 minutes ago and only vaguely understand now. Okay, <laughs> so, essentially, what I want to talk about is how did people in the Middle Ages actually look at medicine and disease and doctors and things like that? Because it's really different from the way that we think of it now, which really informs some of the stories and stuff that you hear about quarantine and about resistance to quarantine in times of plague and everything. For instance, there was a there, there were a good few, some would argue, uh, heretical pastors uh, throughout times of plague who would bring people on like marches through the street and have like really close quarters assemblies and stuff and the church was involved in that kind of towards the earlier years of the plague but eased off later on as they realized that all of their preachers were dying uh, in fact that's a, one of the big theories as to why the political power of the t- church declined so much was because priests were expected to no matter what deliver the last rites to the dying and that meant that they had to go to people who were dying of the plague. And so Ugh. while it wasn't it wasn't common for people to not to like avoid that. It wasn't people common for priests to like run away from that and be and like avoid their duties. Because that's stories of that you kind of hear from coming from uh, you hear stories like that about all sorts of different professionals in the Middle Ages, especially during the Black Death. Mm. Those were the only ones that really lived. So that was it was the Black Death that encouraged the Pope to sign that edict that said that you didn't need to be in the company of a priest when you died to go to heaven. Because you used to have to. If you didn't have a priest delivering your last rites, then you just wouldn't go to heaven. Black Death changed that. So that's a fun fact. But, yeah. So, we're talking now about an era uh, where the 
common kind of medical theories uh, vary pretty wildly uh, over the centuries and even in the same era. So throughout the Middle Ages, the most common theory of medicine was the humoral theory. The idea that there are like four essential fluids in the body that have to be in balance and disease came from an imbalance in those fluids. Oh, that's right. Yes. No, you, uh, cause that's what there's, there's phlegm, phlegm, black phlegm, bile, black yellow, bile, bile, yellow bile, bile and sanguine being blood. I think, yeah, I yeah. think that's right. That's why like leaching and stuff was a thing because you'd be drawing out blood to increase like your yellow your bile or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of the common theory. There were also theories that disease was spread through miasma or bad air. That's why you see plague doctors with the big noses. Masks full of potpourri. Yeah, because they would be full of potpourri. The, the scent of that would cut, would supposedly cut through the bad air. And those sorts of things were used pretty commonly by physicians of the era. Even ones that didn't go all the way and put on like the big fun plague doctor outfit. There was... A, an idea, especially towards the like later Middle Ages, that physicians, in the same way that a priest owed a duty to the sick and the dying, there was beginning this idea that physicians did too. Mm. Because they didn't for a long time. For, for, for a good long while, you had a natural right to practice medicine. So it kind of coincides with the era of medicine becoming like licensed and regulated and stuff as well. Because mm. at one point, you were, by being a person, allowed to practice medicine however you wanted, whenever you wanted, wherever you wanted. Yeah. But then the plague starts, and things are obviously pretty different now. So it started becoming more and more common because uh, because that idea came from like the era of like Galen and like the the Greek kind of schools of medicine that underpinned a lot of what medieval medical theory was because mm. for a long time they didn't research medicine anymore. You couldn't dissect bodies, you couldn't really do much of anything in terms of medical research for a couple hundred years. So everyone was just reading like Galen's books over and over and over again. Mm. It wasn't until somebody started cutting some people open that they were like, oh, half of this stuff is wrong. All of it's made up. But that was that, that, that was an era where, yeah, you could just do the practice of medicine were a right and the physician might exercise his art completely at his own discretion on whomsoever, whenever and whenever and wherever he might wish, bound to his fellow men by no obligation however ill-defined, other than by whatever ethical principles he might choose to adopt. Hmm. That was what medicine was. But there was ideas of people owing obligations to the public. The king owed an obligation to the public to act in their interests. The, the king's magistrates owed an obligation to the public to decide on the law in the interest of the public good. Priests owed their duties for to like the spiritual care of their parishioners. And as physicians started to become more and more organized into guilds, which kind of became universities uh, as we know them now, they it was essentially a practice in monopolizing. Yeah. You would just take over the medical practice of your town. But the only way that you could maintain the trust of the town and you could stay and settle somewhere, because, I mean, for a long time, people would just kind of show up, do their medical thing, and then leave. But if you were just fucking around and doing whatever, you couldn't just sit there. You couldn't establish yourself. Yeah. So they were like, okay, we need to have some kind of a, some kind of a, a standard of care, a standard of ethics to be able to stay in these places. So that was kind of the idea that was coming about around this time. And then, obviously, the plague 
starts up again. And some physicians did flee. Yeah. Uh, because they didn't have anything they could do about it. I mean, they were still using a lot, like, a lot of people were using, like, magic to try and cure the plague. Uh, standard practice was to go to someone's house and assess if they did have it. Yeah. And if you thought that they had it, some people would distinguish between people you could cure and people you couldn't. Some people would say you couldn't cure anyone, and so that would be their justification to leave after you said they had the plague. But usually people said there is some versions of the plague you can cure. Mm. And the reason for that is they had this idea of empirica, which is a, a, it's a Latin word. Um, it's, it's the root of empirical evidence, yeah. which were essentially medical cures that came from these innate qualities of of some things. These innate, like, curative abilities that it had that were just kind of like a gift from God to man, uh, which was an idea that came about kind of in the early... It, it, early Christian period. Um, I love the idea of thinking about medicine like that. Like, you believe that God created everything, that everything happens for a reason, and you also believe that God made you get sick and then said, actually, I'm kind of sorry about that one. Here, eat some dandelion and your headache will go away. Like, that was a little rough, my friend. Oops. Well, it was it was a time where getting sick became... Because medicine was was a relationship between you and God. In the Christian tradition, it was this divine God gave you illness as a, essentially as a, as like a trial for the soul and to like strengthen yourself overall. And then also gave you the medicine and the wisdom to use it. So that kind of like, it was like a complementary thing that it was almost like being sick because being sick enables you to discover more medicine. Mm. So it's, this kind of, like, early merging of, like, Hellenistic, like, ancient Greek study of things happening and this idea of, like, God as giving you everything to help you live your life creates an era where people tried to cure everything and then just assumed that if you got better, it was just... Oh, God said this thing cures it then. It's yeah. just God said this thing cures it. So you had people that would be using all, so all sorts of crazy shit, like literal snake oil and stuff. Though, I mean, snake oil actually has some medical properties, but that's beside the point. Really? Um, yeah, that's a... Uh, I can't remember what it's for, but there's a bunch of things that they're doing research with like some like snake venom and stuff at the moment. Apparently it has cool. some very interesting med medicinal properties that I cannot remember off the top of my head. Yeah. But for the most part, like people didn't reject medicine in the church. And medical people didn't reject God. It was very much like natural phenomena, trials of the soul, trials of the self, opportunities to discover these miracles and empirica and stuff. I mean, some people even still use like prayers and charms as yeah. like part of their medical repertoire. It was less common to see that amongst surgeons and people who like really practiced medicine. But I mean, even they had a bunch of them that they would just like they would so there were a bunch of medical professionals who would say I don't use this like magical bullshit and then still have a whole thing on like incantations because it was just wow. medicine and spirituality were the same thing and so disease was really scary because it was an attack from like god himself mm. uh pestilence was either a sign of the end times or like god's punishing all of us and while 
a lot of people didn't turn that into punish the self to like, like or like sacrifice or whatever to uh, to like please God. Their attempts to cure it were still very much focused on the divine the entire time because it was all they had. Yeah, it was all they had. If someone got better, then whatever you did must have worked because everyone died. Um, I guess. I mean, with some medicine, they were right. If you didn't die, they did do something right for some of the medicine sometimes. <laughs> I guess that's that. Yeah. Did I miss anything? No, it felt no. pretty comprehensive. Cool. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that. And that's a nice little look on uh, sort of the more medical side of, yeah, of, of quarantine and the, the plagues that caused it. Yeah, it's just worth knowing how people looked at it and what they thought was going on and what they thought they could do and stuff. It was, yeah. it was, yeah. And I mean, that era, that idea of, like, doctor's obligations, I mean, is what inspired medical ethics. Yeah, um, that, that's why we have medical ethics. It was, it really came about in this era. Because uh, until then, it was kind of, like, unspoken rules. Um, there's a bunch of writings of, like, medieval doctors and stuff who are, like, actively condemning people who, like, fled the plague. <laughs> Could you imagine if it wasn't, like like documentation you had to sign to promise you wouldn't do like that sort of shit if you were just like laying in hospital and the doctor was like eh I don't know it's kind of gross I don't want to mm. yeah <laughs> and left even even people who would just leave town because they had like a, cl- a family that they worked for specifically and the family fled town even pe- people even looked at them and were like oh I don't know man that seems kind of fucky seems like you should help the other people first like even if it was their whole job Jesus. the whole thing changed by the end of the by the end of the plague times anyway so that's that that's that so I reckon we've actually because we've had a bit of discussion about this sort of stuff um, and also because we're getting geared up for a fantastic session of our own uh, we have guests lining up in the other room, uh, just outside the studio, uh, and by the studio I mean uh, Lachlan's bedroom. My very small bedroom, everyone can hear everything through the walls. Absolutely. It's so good, I'm having a great time. Um, thank you all so much for joining us once again uh, for another week. We'll have, uh, for at least another couple of weeks, but I'm hoping to keep it going for a while, uh, every other week some, some little character focuses. Yeah. I believe next week we should have one on Grebo, uh, who oh, is... Beans. Lachlan's ca- uh, character from my uh, campaign. Yeah, um, so keep an ear out for that. Yeah, keep an ear out for that. And enjoy your games, keep playing them. Hopefully you'll have a chance, if you're in Australia, to meet up with your, your parties in person at the moment, or Huzzah. sometime soon. Okay. If you're in the US, unfortunately, please keep isolating. God damn. <laughs> please! Um, but uh, thank you all very much, and we'll see you next week. Fucking bye. Bye. Love you. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.